Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your generous support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. And you can email us at hello at letshearitcast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Yes, what he said. Now, let's get to the show. Let's hear it. All right. Here we are again for Let's Hear It. Um, a real, real treat this week. Um, Eric sits down with Philly Wong from the uh, the founder and president founder, president, and CEO of Baycat. Eric, tell us about this conversation. There's a lot to unpack from this discussion. Okay, so Baycat is what they call a social enterprise. It's a business that does a good social thing. That's that's <laughs> that's my definition of social enterprise. But Baycat, it's what they call a social enterprise. They it, call it. <laughs> they they do they do video production. They work with nonprofits. They work with some for, for profits. One of the things that they do is they work with young people in the community, particularly young people of color, to help them learn about how to do video production. And these kids are going on to careers. So there's so much going on here. I uh, Let me just start by saying to you, Kirk, that Villy is one of our most ardent and close listeners. She, oh, she, wonderful. She That's listens great. to every episode really carefully. We were talking afterwards about the podcast and things like that. And she gave me such good feedback, candid feedback, really helpful. Excellent. uh, She's a wonderful listener. So having her on is a particular delight. We got along. We get along great. I love this woman. She's fabulous. And she's, she's engaging. And as you'll hear, we have some things in common. Uh, we're both from New York, but I also think mm. we have a kind of a sensibility in common as why, why I felt like we clicked so well. She's just fabulous. This woman is, what she is doing is extraordinary. Well, here we go again. So, Villy, then this is for you. And as long as we know Villy's listening podcast to podcast, Eric, we're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives. But there is a lot to get in here and um, into here because Baycat is doing something extremely important and interesting. And as a result, I can imagine it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, too. Um, so, Vili, thank you for all of your work in bringing this forward and for joining us on Let's Hear It. And so let's get into this interview. And then, Eric, man, we've got some ground to cover when we come back. Yep, we do. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Vili Wong, who is the founder, president, and CEO of Baycat, which is... <laughs> We'll call it a production organization, but it's obviously just so much more than that. Let's just get started. Tell me about Baycat, which, okay, for, I'm going to back up a little bit and say, I just walked through this place and it's unbelievable. <laughs> we're we're in, uh, in the dog patch area in San Francisco and, and 
there's like these 30 foot high ceilings. There's people around here who are really excited. There's amazing stuff up on the walls. And uh, this is just a really exciting way to engage the community. And uh, I just want, I'd love to hear you t- just give us the spiel on Baycat to get started. Awesome. And just for you listeners out there, there's, we're actually in a whisper room room and Eric and I are in very close proximity uh, and we're not in the room, That's but right. in the room, it's all very bizarre. So when you come visit, it will definitely come to light. <laughs> if, if you know Hamilton, we're near the room where it happens. That's right. That's right. But we're not in it. Exactly. We're not in it, but we're in another room where it happens. <laughs> Baycat is the place where it happens. It stands for actually Bayview Hunters Point Center for Arts and Technology. The inspiration is really around the power of story and the fact that, as you know, media is power. Our world is more divided than ever with the amplification of media and stories in so many ways. Statistically, as as well as what we see, we know that we don't all see ourselves in these stories that are portrayed in media. And now that we have social media and though people have their own voices, the problem of access and technology, you know, our young people that we work with are coming from areas where they don't have access. They might be showing up with a smartphone these days, but they still don't have computers at home. And when you talk about these tools of storytelling these days, both the access, the education, and what you see, the misrepresentation, underrepresentation of stories that are still out there, what we're here to do is to break that cycle. We know, and I actually gave a TED Talk that talked about ending racism and the bad isms through storytelling. That's what we're here to do. That's our purpose. We want to change who the storytellers are and therefore change the stories that are told, amplify those that are often untold to ultimately change the world and make it more positive. So nominally, you're a video production house, right? You produce videos for mostly nonprofit organizations, but other kind of socially interested enterprises. And and you're you have a team of video professionals and post-production people and stuff like that, but you're also working. How many young people do you work with on a regular basis to help them use this medium and to become professionals in their own right. We have both that studio that you're talking about in addition to the academy. Our academy and our studio together, we work with about 250 young people, primarily coming from low-income communities, and they're primarily young women and people of color. The ages start from as young as 11, and trust me, if I could raise money to start even younger, I would, because of course we're bombarded by media, and our young people already at the age of 11 have their own self-perceptions of who they are and the pressure of what they see, right? So the pathway we built, though, is from 11 to 25-year-olds. The academy specializes in a youth program for the 11 to 17-year-olds. Here, we really want them to discover themselves, find their story, find their voice. And for every person that walks in, even with you, we want to tell you and let you believe and find out for yourself that your story matters. So what they do is very project-oriented as with everything that we do here. And at the end of 12 weeks, they're producing a show that's going to be premiering. And we've been at the Alamo Draft House or the Bayview Opera House. So on the big screen, ready or not, here's a deadline. We're going to work backwards from that and teach you the state-of-the-art storytelling tools, all the Adobe creative suites, animation, sound production, etc. And they're creating their own show. From that, we also now have saw that our young people not only love this, so what we love is seeing our kids coming back, but they want 
to work. So last year, we actually created a crew and we're hiring high schoolers. You have to have taken a Big Hat class so you know what how we work. But this crew is also part of this bridge to studio. And then just, you know, fast forward on the internship side, it's a little bit of that bridge where we're still training them on the job. And for many of them, they've never really touched a professional camera. Some of them may have studied, I would say 50% about might have some educational background in this video production or music production world, but most of them don't. But they have this desire and passion and this curiosity of finding out who they are and how their voice can matter. So our studio trains them on the job. It's a 16-week program, and we do it twice a year, and we literally match them up to real clients that our studio has. So as a result, out of this 250, you could see young people in training through this path. Some are still discovering their voice, doing their first web series. Some are knowing that they want to be filmmakers or be these storytellers or be social media experts, and they are ready to get into the career. So we train them on the job and then launch them into industry, the creative tech and media industries. You know, when I was 11 years old, I just, I was discovering that the back of the Crayola box had a sharpener. So I was learning how to sharpen a crayon. You've got these kids who are producing these amazing materials. Pointy tools, right? That's how, that's how that works. We had rocks and exactly. sticks. Um, your story is a, a really interesting story. I'd really like to spend a little time talking about this fascinating uh, journey that you've had from, well, we're, we're both from New York. Yay. And we're like blocks away from each other. We're, we ended up both in Queens that's right, right. at some point. Yep. I was in Forest Hills. Yep. That's like part of the journey. I was in Flushing. Right. And so <laughs> I still have cousins in Flushing. Hey, cousins. <laughs> you know, yes. And I'm, you, I'm famously a Mets fan, <laughs> which is horrible because the Mets always break your heart. But yeah, so, so we're a couple of New Yorkers. And now and, the Giants, but not this year. Right? I, okay. I, okay. I, look. <laughs> you don't pick your team. Your team picks you. Oh. And the Mets picked me. That's oh, all I can okay. say. Uh, the Giants okay. are a very nice team. Yes. <laughs> I wish them all the best. <laughs> You're from New York and you did not grow up thinking you were going to be, you know, like run a film multimedia studio that we're in which you work with young people to help them find their voice, right? Heck no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know this existed. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing. And here's why it's so exciting that you're working with these kids, which is that most of the jobs that these kids will be working in haven't been invented yet. And the ability to learn new technologies and to engage in storytelling and all these other things are going to be tools that they use for the rest of their lives. But yes, it's true that it's possible that this job didn't exist when when you, but you were you were not going in this direction were you definitely not no and i would i would say you know i'm i'm the 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 perfect chinese daughter model minority like in many ways i felt like when i was growing up i ended up being that stereotype but but i would say the inspiration and the journey was really my mom she's my shiro but it was also the power of story and how her stories were silenced i didn't grow up in a household so she was a single mom she grew up in japanese occupied china escaped the communists i mean talk about stories galore wow she never read to me she never shared her stories. These were not bedtime stories. They were not stories she talked about. And I think she deliberately silenced them, as many immigrants do, wanting to start a new future. And I think beyond 
working in the sweatshop with her, like our relationship was so tight. And what I saw as far as the Shiro, she put herself through night school, got a certificate in fashion design at FIT in New York. I always joke if Project Runway was happening and they did it for seniors, she would have killed it. She would (laughs) have rocked it. She would have won. So I had amazingly designed children's clothes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I also grew up in the sweatshop with her and, and we sewed so many types of things. And ultimately, she's an entrepreneur. So that little DNA is in my bloodstream. And I think seeing her fire and creating something out of nothing. She started this business. She wanted to create a much better factory with better conditions, grew a little family. It was a little factory in the garment district that she started that I helped her with and ultimately made enough money. And that's how we ended up for ourselves Queens. But her lack of story, like, I don't think I realized how that influenced me until really I developed, right? So the night, the good daughter wanted then ultimately to make as much money because I saw how hard my mom worked. And that meant being a good student, you know, trying to go to the best schools, et cetera. But she also didn't know what, she was not the tiger mom in that way. She didn't know how to direct me. And so for me, it really was self-discovery. Best jobs out there, you know, were engineering at the time. Something like I was Chinese, good in math and science. Again, like I happened to be. Um, But, you know, really my love was in arts and creative and um, music. And I loved going to the art classes. I remember the fashion design classes my mom had. So I think in a lot of ways, it's that struggle that continues today for artists, right? That ultimately inspired me and how my mom just shut all that down for herself. So even though she had a creative outlet, which was through this factory, it was about making money. That was the goal. That was the end that we had to get to. So that's how I ended up going from engineering to becoming a banker on Wall Street and then finding out when I was a banker and the lawyers were making more money than I was and they had all the answers and then you couldn't do anything without getting a lawyer to say yes. I was like, I want that one. (laughs) So I ended up going to law school. And that's what brought me out to San Francisco, actually practicing at Morrison and Forster, which was the most progressive law firm I found in the nation once I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) What was that like? What was it like to be a, a, a lawyer? It was, you know, my mom was so proud. So going back to like, yes, you made it, you're, you've got the job. And I I remember, you know, having her see the Morrison Enforcer offices and and, and it was like the perfect view of the Angel Island and Alcatraz and the Golden Gate Bridge. But, you know, I have to say I was still one of the few Asian women in that uh, law firm. I think trying to find my place was a difficult journey. I learned so much from it and I got to work from, uh, you know, litigation team with like Jim Brosnahan and got to see him in action, you know, one of the best litigators in the world and, and be under his wing for a little bit. But I was like, oh, this conflicting thing was not for me, especially when I had to do a mock trial that was like one way into litigation. And I had to defend basically Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do? That's another chapter. I won. He won. But yes. Let, let's, let's hear it for conspiracy theories. Clearly it was a frame up. <laughs> um, That's amazing. Yeah. So like I had that kind of work, but also got to, you know, really understand how business works. And that was when the light bulb went off. It wasn't actually my day-to-day corporate work. It was the pro bono. The the light bulb went off for me when I got to incorporate my first nonprofit organization as a lawyer. 
And when I did, I was like, what is this 501c3 thing? And you're going through the, you know, the, the, the many piles of documents for that. But then I discovered, I was like, oh, wow, you could have a business with a purpose. That is exactly what I want. Because someplace in my bloodstream, as I'm saying, I think the spark of Baycat and this journey that I took and seeing that I didn't quite belong on Wall Street or in these areas. So this misrepresentation or underrepresentation, I definitely felt that and, and just pulled it all together. What if I could start a business that encompasses this education, this entrepreneurship, creating something out of nothing, but ultimately harnessing the power of story? Just really theoretically, that's where it started. And that's where the Baycat idea came from. Yeah, And it's an amazing business. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm so glad I got to come and walk around and, and, and breathe the air here because it is an amazing business through these incredible people. It's funny, in terms of mothers, I have a little mother story. And I don't think I don't think she listens to the podcast, so I think I can tell it. <laughs> but well, I was a child actor, and I was kind of raised to be an actor, and my mother was very proud of that. And one day I said to her, I, I was in Hollywood, and I wasn't getting any work, and my career was going nowhere. And I said, I think I'm going to go back to school or try and do something with my life or give back to society. And she said, you're making a terrible mistake. <laughs> I, still, I still think she, if I told her mom I'm quitting whatever it is I do. And I'm going to go back to Hollywood and be an unemployed actor. She's like, that's good. good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing how we end up where we end up because of, and in spite of all of those relationships that we have and the most yes, important ones. Yes. And I, I could relate to your mom and my mom could have related, but you know, when I told her I was quitting, cause ultimately I, I thought I would start Bakehead on the side as a lawyer. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. And I saved up six months of rent, basically. And I finally had the guts. And it was like just kind of a perfect storm of it wasn't working out at MoFo for me. Like I wasn't finding my place. And I had this other idea that was this fire in my belly. And then one day I just told my mom, you know, hey, mom, I'm going to quit my job. And, you know, it was like the, what, Nifola, you know, are you crazy? It was like Joylet Club meets like <laughs> Margaret Cho, like, you know, I could do the whole thing. And she basically disowned me at that point because she no. was just, you're not my daughter anymore. You are absolutely crazy. It was a difficult time, like making these big transitions and pursuing what you really believe in. Nobody, there's no roadmap. I mean, for you either, no, right? No, like no, no. to this day. So I think all the layers, like my biggest joy is seeing our young people. We tell them this path is not easy. Being the the storytelling, the content development, the you know media arts, not easy. But if you're really passionate about it, then buckle down, work hard, and we will do this together as a community to figure out how to build these new pathways. I wish somebody was there for me <laughs> back in the day when I was like, oh boy, I remember sitting on the, you know, after that first day when you're unemployed air quotes, oh my God. <laughs> and you're like, look at me. And I, I actually had a view of the Morrison of Forrester building and I was waving in my imagination and also for real and thinking about my friends who were working up there. I'm like, ha, don't have to go to work today. Look at my, this is my 10th cup of coffee at home. <laughs> And I like had beads on the carpet and I was like making earrings. And then there was that moment where I'm looking up and going, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I've had that moment 17 times. 
today. Well, at least <laughs> that was before lunch. Well, we, we're going to take a short break and we're going to get back and we're going to talk about a lot more about what Baycat does and also talk about the power of narrative, which is a conversation that we've been having on this podcast for quite some time. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. So we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And I'm back with Vili Wong, who is the founder, president, and CEO of Baycat, this incredible nonprofit social enterprise. What's a, what's a social enterprise anyway? People people throw that that phrase around, and I, I caught myself right now because I think it's one of those things that people don't quite understand. What do you what do you call what do you how do you describe what that means? It's a business with a purpose. As a businesswoman, I also think you are not only having a purpose, you're figuring out how to make money and monetize and create a sustainable business model. And can you talk about some of the projects that you've been working on? I know you've done some really cool stuff and I want, I, I want people to know about it. Thank you. Well, so really exciting. I, I think that power of story and thinking about the philanthropic landscape and what are those stories that are not told that people need to know that are happening that actually make us proud to live in the Bay Area or to make us proud of community. One of those watershed moments and projects was doing 50 stories of 50 nonprofits for Super Bowl 50. What better way? Because as storytellers, we want to lift up and build the marketing capacity and communications abilities of great nonprofits doing the work on the ground. Because we can't solve all the problems that are related to the cycle of poverty and also all the media misrepresentation and underrepresentation. We work with hundreds of these nonprofits, but often they don't have the budget. And when you look at that business structure, that's pretty broken. The majority of percentage of money goes to the actual program. But then when you think about outreach or fundraising, that's the last, those are the last dollars that are spent for nonprofits. So when you think about that, that cycle is completely broken. What if we made it easier when you think about commercial ads and billboard campaigns of companies with lots of money that we're bombarded with? How do we flip that a bit? So our favorite thing is to tell stories that actually benefit nonprofits. We get to work with those people in that philanthropic landscape who get that. So Super Bowl 50 was actually very ahead of the game. So not only that they produce the biggest party in football, but Daniel Lurie with his vision said, hey, what if we're the most giving Super Bowl ever? And they had the foresight to invest in actually telling these stories. Similarly to me, these foundations are like that. San Francisco Foundation is one of our clients, the Hewlett Foundation. We're about to sign on the Irvine Foundation. We've worked with CZI, Chan Zuckerberg Institute. And part of this is because they already do the social impact work. What can we do as storytellers to amplify that? So that's one very exciting project. That, again, is the Baycat studio side. And it's a way for us to sustain and earn income 
and have the ability to tell these stories with the win-win-win, going back to the definition of social enterprise. The foundations or our clients get a beautiful professionally made media that's authentic. These are stories that we mine that are part of the constituents that they work with. And how do we make that impact story authentic? The second thing that happens is those nonprofits or those who tell the story have ultimately a capacity to then reuse that video. And of course, we're very intentional and think about the best communication strategies and say, what should go on social? What ends up on your website? What are you using for fundraising? So we think through that as story strategists with all these layers of people. The win becomes you have this message that ends up helping and supporting. And of course, the third and fourth layer are the storytellers themselves. Often when we go to these nonprofits and we interview them, they're so grateful. You know, it's difficult, it's challenging even for me to talk about my past or to talk about these transformations. But when that happens, you see the individual, that that person who glows and says, thank you, I just found my own voice. And then of course, last but not least, which is the hardest to measure, is who views the video and how does that impact? Because maybe you didn't know that this organization existed before. Um, and I just thought of one more layer. Good which to is, delete another layer. Yeah, which is, of course, the people that we hire and train on right. the job who are behind the cameras or behind the scenes, building their resume. And that's why we're able to launch their careers and they're getting jobs at the Pixars and ILMs at Airbnb, et cetera. Lots of layers. <laughs> it's <a> Napoleon, <laughs> lasagna or something. Can you tell a, a story or two from either one of the nonprofits that you worked with or some of the filmmakers that whom you've been working with? Yeah, let's let's start with what comes to mind, especially is our young people and what their journeys are. And I could probably combine the two a little bit. One of our young people grew up in Bayview Hunters Point and unfortunately grew up in the area where uh, there was a lot of pollution and grew up with asthma. So he missed school a lot. And uh, he would always say, you know, that meant I got to watch a lot of television. <laughs> and like me, didn't really see himself represented in media, but thought like, wow, how does that happen? His mom discovered Baycat and he joined us at the age of 13. And then he created his first show. And uh, I, we still like, I still have this image of him with the, the, the sparkling eyes and he's teaching us slang like Papyakala. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> so he discovers his own voice as a teenager teenager and you could see the spark in his eye light light up and then just stay there right he's like I want to be a filmmaker so with his little portfolio because our young people create these series we got to help him get into um, like he applied for school of the arts he applied for the cats and he got into cat so the oh I forget what that stands for but basically the high school that does arts and technology the and so it was great that he was studying this and he got even more electrified he stayed with us did more, more shows did his own thing and then graduated. And at that point, you know, coming from his situation, he also, of course, was working and decided, you know, he got a job at Trader Joe's. And now he's in high school trying to figure out the college. Um, and we stay in touch with our young people, of course. Uh, so he ended up going to the city and he found that it was really challenging to balance work, bringing home some, you know, some money for the family, but also studying film. And it and the academic side, because I think of his just challenge 
challenge with ac- academics, it was it was tough for him to get through that. So at that point, that was a turning point for him. And it was just about then that we also happened to get a client. The Meta Fund found us. They're a foundation, but they work with hundreds of nonprofits that are all health related. And they started off as a donor with us, but they wanted to know how to hire our studio. And at that point, I want to say it was like post-recession, everybody, all the foundations were going, oh my goodness, how are we spending our money? And they were doing a revisioning of their strategies. And they've been doing a lot of health-related work, but at this point, they knew Bayview Hunters Point was a place of need. And they came to us and said, is there some way that you could tell a story or show us, have your, have your filmmakers show us what are the health issues and environmental issues in Bayview Hunters Point? At that point, we're like, oh my goodness, are you kidding? Yes. So we we got taken on and we ended up hiring four young adults like in that transitional age and, and this young man was one of them. And imagine you grow up in Bayview Hunters Point with asthma and you have a chance to tell this story of what it's like to grow up with this issue and be that filmmaker. So working in a collaborative way, which is another skill set, one of those things that's so important, he and three others got to tell the story. And they created this docu-short that ended up being in film festivals and winning. So it's actually award-winning. And the other part of it is we got to highlight through that, the, like the Third Street Bayview Health Clinic, we got to highlight, they got to highlight the nonprofits that are in the neighborhood doing this work. Win, win, win. For this young man, it was that transformative moment because we are professional. And as we train our young people, it means you've got deadlines and you have to know how to manage your own time. And at that point, he was still working at Trader Joe's and he would come in after doing a midnight shift and it was a hard day of production. And it was those moments where we looked each other in the eye and and I asked him, what do you really want to do? I know you have many demands and responsibilities, but this is a moment to really understand how this is affecting you and what decisions you're going to make toward your future. It was kind of that test case and real life scenario with this young man who who ultimately said, I want to be a filmmaker, so how do I do this? So during that time, he also like took a little bit of a leave, you know, didn't work at Trader Joe's, like whatever it took to just balance his life to make that film and that beautiful moment. So we replicate this in our youth program as well is when you show your story to the world. And he got to present the story with the other filmmakers in front of, get this, I mean, how often do you do this, Eric, the board of directors of the Meta Fund. Neat. Right. So here are the people who have the power to decide what to do with their money, listening to these young voices and st- storytellers who are from Bayview Hunters Point talking about here's what our challenges are and here's what we would recommend. So when he found out and he's told me before how that moment made him realize the power of his own voice and how it could help his own community, he really just for the art of it all, like really wanted to do this. Fast forward, he signed up for our internship program and that was a six month program at that time. Again, challenging him in all these different ways and more honing his skills. He just ate up everything in that program and loved cinematography, especially. He graduated and his first job out of there was with the San Francisco Giants. Oh, wow. <laughs> so don't talk about the Mets anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, okay, he, fine. I'll root for the Giants. <laughs> 
fine. Stop gritting your teeth. <laughs> mean it. So anyway, he got to work for the Giants. And as for many of these positions, they're temporary positions as production assistants. And what we do here is really... It's not just about serving the youth. It's about serving the world. The world will be better if we have diverse storytellers everywhere. So we stayed in touch with the SF Giants, and I talked to the director of HR then and Iman after that first year as a temporary position and said, hey, what worked, what didn't, what did you love? And from Iman, we found out like what the challenges were day to day to be practically on call you know, when there's a game, you're 60 hours when when it's not maybe 10. That's hard for a young person who's never had to do that before balance that. So we knew we had to teach him some more. On the other side, it's the HR people said, Oh, my God, we love Imad. Can we have 100 of them? I'm like, Okay, this is good. They actually, you know, their first requirement was a four year degree. Oh, wow. He did not have that. And now I've already also, um, I did the reveal. His name is Iman. And so at that point, it was, okay, if you're willing to hire Iman again, I'm glad you want 100 and we could work on that. But what about Iman? What about him? Rehire him. And they did. And soon, you know, in keeping the conversations on both sides, when a permanent position, they were able to finally offer him a permanent position. He is four years into his career and he has won three Emmys. (laughs) And I am the luckiest person in the world because I get these text messages from him with these little pictures. And when he got his two Emmys this time, you know, he made sure I saw that he, you know, sends me a picture with him and Danny Glover. Uh, when he got to film the uh, retirement of Barry Bonds's number, they had, like Danny Glover was part wow. of that. Um, he's traveling and filming, and I know he's his uh, reputation as a cinematographer has gone now beyond. The beautiful gift that he's given us back is he's a mentor. So he's actually come back, volunteered with us, and mentored the next generation of filmmakers and continues to support us and even give us equipment that the Giants don't want anymore. Wow, that's an amazing story. It gets at this question that we are all grappling with around narrative shift. We are trying to change the conversation, whatever that means, around a variety of questions. What is it? What does success mean? Whose voices are, are valued? How do we treat the least of our neighbors in our communities? How do we deal with the disparity of wealth, of privilege, of all these things? And a lot of times people will say, okay, well, we got a set of messages and we're going to find someone to deliver those messages. But what I'm hearing, obviously, is that if you unleash the creativity of people who have these authentic, these genuine stories to tell, that you can't control that message. You shouldn't. Give them that opportunity to to express themselves and great things will happen that you can't predict. You don't know what direction. You certainly could have predicted that Iman would go to work for the San Francisco Giants. And yes. you'd have to ask yourself, you, you kind of spend some time thinking about how, how to, what effect does that have in our community? And I think the answer is obvious, which is here he's, he, now he's a mentor. He's developing a professional profile. Who knows where his work is going to take him? And that's it feels to me like part of the point, but that in itself is narrative shift. I think absolutely. Um, where else do you see this work going? Where do you see the next X years ahead 
for Baycat, for you, for Iman, <laughs> and for the many, many staff people and interns and students that come through these doors. Yes. Well, and it did, yeah, we want to take over all social impact media. Let's do it. Let's take over. I think, you know, the, like your, to your point, right, the stories are there, actually. So what is it that we can do? And to the extent we're starting this movement, this like we've got this business model that we're wondering if could be replicated. What we want to just bring the whole network of people who believe in this narrative shift and are helping to make that happen, make that a reality. So from the employment side of it, which is we know by changing the storytellers and putting them into places where these stories are made, anybody who's creating story from the tech industry for the for the media, which is obvious and advertising communications, there's a way now to implement these changes right away. I think that's one area. The second, you know, set of stakeholders, I think becomes this philanthropic landscape, which is why I love this podcast (laughs) and these conversations. I think you're talking about this almost every time in different ways, but I believe the philanthropic community has a responsibility beyond the annual reports. You know, you get to the heart of this, which let's take the flip side. I'm still, still filling out grant applications or reports that have to say, how many moms do we have? And yeah, I could say we serve 250 kids a year, we've done thousands, but what is the real impact of the Amons, right? And how many of them are there? And those are really difficult things to measure. And in the philanthropic world, as well as in the research world, I think we all have to think about how do we reconfigure what these measurements of success look like, and therefore measurements of impact stories. Like what are these stories that we are shining a light on? That's already starting to change. You look at reports, you look at commercials, you're seeing maybe more brown and black people or or women or whatever that might look like. But I think making sure that it's authentic and understanding that we got to have that next conversation. So if Iman represents a whole world of possibility, what is it that we're doing to both create the programmatic infrastructure for that to happen? as well as the impact, you know, the, 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 the results of that. As far as the landscape, we're looking at that. And as we turn 15 years old, we're about to throw our 15th anniversary party on the top penthouse of Salesforce. I always like to say, I like to shout it from the mountaintop, but I'm going to do that <laughs> from the penthouse of the Salesforce Tower. Um, you know, our first and foremost priority is to really find who are those employers and corporations and people in places of power and have the money because we are a nonprofit and we're looking for those multi-year partners and whether you you're an employer, you're a donor, and what I like to call cloner, you're a client and a donor, <laughs> D-O-N-O-R, C-L-O-N-O-R. Um, we are looking to build the next 15 years and to build really this new business model to say we can do it all. You could be a creative, you could be an artist, you could be a storyteller, and you could have the soul and have the spirit, but yet produce beautiful stories that have that impact. You could do it all. And your business will do better because more people will be attracted to you and they will feel the authentic stories. They will know that this is real. And I I just feel like we're at that precipice of making that happen. So for the next 15 years, we're definitely looking at building those partnerships. We also are following where our interns are and where the business is. We're interested, especially in New York and LA, because of course the media and creative industries are extremely strong there. 
we're also cognizant that there's still so many areas that are underrepresented. And I've been invited worldwide as far as like Korea, Japan, China. We've even taken some youth to Ethiopia. Like, I just feel that this is a need worldwide. So we're looking for partners who totally get this and want to tell story with us. Well, this is an amazing model. You're doing incredible stuff. I'm so grateful for you to take the time to talk with us. Thank you again so much, Billy Wong. Thank you. And let's get out of the closet now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, we're back. Eric Brown with Billy Wong, the founder, president, and CEO of Baycat. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So maybe let's start here. I think it's possible. I'm now convinced that it's possible to end racism through storytelling. What do you think? It's it's. What I will say is that the work that she is doing is so important, so valuable, and it gives is one of the things that gives me hope. We talk about that a lot, and it really gives me hope. The people, the young people that whom she's working with, are extraordinary. The work that they're doing is so cool. We we talk about narrative. We talked about it a little bit in our conversation, but the best way to change the narrative is to change the damn narrative. And to, <laughs> and to hear from people who don't get heard from right. and to un- better understand how the world works because you're finally seeing it. That's And that it really draws upon threads from other conversations that we've had. If you remember back to Donnie Sandoval, yeah. who, who I, I runs, thought about Denise a lot. Yeah, who runs Lava May. She works with she provides mobile showers to people who are uh, unhoused in San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and the East Bay. And her work is about really seeing people. Mm-hmm. And once you actually see somebody, it changes who you are. And I think that's what changing the narrative will actually means, the narrative, whatever the hell that means. What it really means is really seeing people. And you can't see people unless you know their story. And Vili is helping to tell these stories and to give the storytelling power to people who's, who have never had it before. And particularly young people who are going to take over this messed up, weird, yeah. <laughs> weird world that we've we've left them. Yeah. Once they have the opportunity to tell their story and to allow other people to see the world through this different lens, that's how you change the narrative. Oh, my God, I'm exhausted. That was that was there's a lot. That was a lot of preaching right there. There's a lot to get into here. <laughs> so so one of the things I love that you mentioned it was very brief, but you just nodded to the environment that you were in. And can you talk a little bit what it was like to be at the Baycat offices? Because <laughs> I just got a little glimpse in, in this idea of how people are being empowered to become the storytellers, to change the narrative. The fact that the place where that's happening clearly feels so special. That rang true a little. That rang through a little bit in your conversation. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What's it like to be a Baycat? Ooh, it's so much fun. First <laughs> of all, the building used to be the American Can Company. Is this massive factory that canned? <laughs> I assume sardines or other canned thing, canned goods. But it was wow. a. It is a part of. They have one little space in this massive building, and the hallway goes. I mean, the hallway felt like it was a quarter mile long. It was, it was, so it's, and they've got these 30 
35-foot ceilings, so it feels open and airy and hopeful inside. And there are wow. people everywhere. There's workspaces everywhere. I think they're probably out, out you know, building, outgrowing their space. But um, young people, uh, a very, very diverse staff, people come from a variety of, of perspectives, there's mm. stuff everywhere. I took a bunch of pictures. I know we always say we're going to put stuff up on the website. I hope we actually <laughs> figure out how to do it this we'll time. Do it. We'll took do a it. bunch of pictures. And it was, you just get this sense of excitement and vibrancy and energy and hopefulness and enthusiasm. Totally, totally cool. Well, and one of the things I loved, Philly kind of mentioned this as she went through her conversation about where this came from, her own journey, relating it to her own experience with her own mother. She's creating a business, and, and we mentioned it briefly at the top. This is a social enterprise, and it really struck me, that part of it, this whole process of bringing people into this um, new experience, giving them access to the technology, giving them training, training them a narrative, but treating it as a business so that's part of what they learn. That's part of what, what these children experience. That in and of itself felt to me like it was a very important part of what Vili is doing. And I'm just curious how that felt being in the presence of that. It feels like to me that that would be a very clarifying part of how this all comes together. But is that is that true? Am I, am I, am I, am I getting that right from your conversation? Yeah, well, if you remember, she was talking about the young man who now works for the San Francisco Giants, who yes. was kind of learning how to work in a, in a business environment himself. So it's not just that she's running a business, but she is training young people about how to operate in the modern economy, which I yes. think was really cool. But she's so she's had this she started Baycat 15 years ago. So oh, this man. is this is no startup now. This is a a fully fledged, totally cranking organization. Ooh, one thing I forgot to mention and the one thing that she forgot to mention in our conversation is mm. that now the her the, the people that she works with and Baycat in in particular are going to be the ones who program the big screen in front of where the warriors are moving to the chase oh, center. And no. there's there's this massive massive screen outside the chase center and there's going to be there's like a public park thing and so there's going to be this big screen and it has this amazing opportunity for storytelling and communications and all that other stuff and Baycat is going to program that screen they're going to provide content for it. So oh. just like they did for the Super Bowl 50 where they did these 50 videos about nonprofit organizations as as part of the Super Bowl now they're doing other kind of community-based storytelling that a lot of people are going to see. So, I mean, to be able to do that kind of work is just amazing. And after 15 years, it's really happening. But, you know, she was an investment banker yes. and a corporate <laughs> lawyer. And she said, like, this is not fulfilling for me. I yeah. I, I have to use my my talents my skills my aptitudes for something more meaningful and boy oh boy has she uh scored on that one well you know as she started talking about all the different ways that the video is used and you know the service they provide for foundations the service they provide for nonprofits. um she gives us one of the great new words we've never heard it yet on the podcast cloners cloners that's for right Oh my goodness, <laughs> clients and donors. Oh my goodness, trademark that immediately, yeah. Billy. It's just tremendous. 
But you know, it's I was I was actually no. Uh, but wait, the other great word that we've had on this podcast was on the conversation that we had with about Jaden and, and Stefan Kibitzers. <laughs> I just don't know how long you've been speaking Yiddish, Kirk. Well, but I, I, I'm just, learning. I'm taking, you're, you're, I'm taking classes. I'm taking classes. So your Yiddish is flawless. But I'm this so is impressed. Oh, this, sorry, I, I, I this it's funny though. You go back to the Fine. Jade Stefan conversation because this is where the podcast starts. Our guests start talking to each other across the, uh, the interviews because um, Jade mentioned getting advice at one point from a colleague that she should dig deeper after in the midst of a banner year. And what that meant to her is that she ended up working to extend their storytelling across a whole new raft of yeah. publications, many much more mark microcasting targeted. And that whole notion of digging deeper and how, when we do that, we can actually literally take over the airwaves in certain, certain circumstances. It actually made me think of Baycat and the story that Billy is telling where she's putting these trained people now out to tell these new stories to break this cycle of what, you know, misrepresentation and underrepresentation, it actually feels to me like it's a very powerful manifestation of what that digging deeper can look like, you know, because you're surfacing the stories and then you're finding the places where they, those stories can get told. And that may have you programming what's happening at the Warriors game too. Yeah. Every, yeah. Right. Oh that, my goodness. That is, you know, it didn't used to be I mean, when I used to go to the Met game. <laughs> That's right. You just uh, got the baseball. By the way, Eric, four years into your career, how many Emmys did you have? I'm just curious. Four years into your career, did well, you have three was, Emmys well, yet? Four years into my career, I was eight years old, and I had no Emmys. <laughs> it's true. That's true. So, speaking <laughs> of young, I've never won. I ain't never won nothing. Speaking of young up and comers, so Baycat is working with students, eleven to twenty five years old helping them discover themselves, find their story, find their voice and find their voice and learn that your story matters. Oh my goodness. So, you know, as, as a parent of a child that's in about that age range, the idea that these students can be put into this context to be learning those, these skills so early, doesn't this feel like a very important idea? Yeah, I well, mean, yeah. Oh my goodness. We t and to be to be clear, there's a team of professionals at Baycat. They produce videos and all that other stuff. So if you're a foundation and you hire Baycat, it's you know they're not yeah. using child labor, <laughs> but but young people get the opportunity to study with them, to study at yeah. Baycat. They go through a program and they participate in projects where it's appropriate. So I just want to make sure that it's clear that what they do and how they work with young people. But we keep asking these questions on the show about, you know, what do you tell young people nah. and how do we, you know, how do we create a new generation that is better connected, communicates better, is engaging on issues that matter and that is making the world a better place as they say in, on, on Silicon Valley. Uh, it, but th th this feels like, I didn't have to ask her that question because she's just doing right. it. Right. That would be the dumbest question ever because it's so obvious about how she is answering that every single day. Oh my goodness. Right. And yes. And, and, um, you know, she mentioned they're working with 250 young people. She also mentions that they would love to raise money to work even earlier. And you make the great point. It's come up before on the podcast 
you know, the, the professionals that enter the field 10 years from now, 15 years from now, will in all likelihood be occupying jobs that don't even exist yet. And I couldn't imagine a better kind of training for a young person to even give them the agility they're going to need to move between those kinds of um, those kinds of tasks or jobs or responsibilities, what have you, than doing something like this. So, so this is where you know. There's always this point in the podcast where I just get really mad and really angry. So, and so you're a very, very angry man. So and I'm a very angry man. Total so, meltdown. So. 250 young people, what an achievement that is. And then I thought, okay, how many zeros can we add to that? And should we add to that? You know, should there be 2 million young people that are part of Baycast inspired programs all over the country? Or she mentions that she's being brought to different parts of the world. Should there be 2 billion young people um, being exposed to this kind of work? And what do you think about that? Because it just, it really felt to me that there's a big, big idea in here that deserves, of course, it should be in San Francisco, in the community where Vili is working, but doesn't it feel like this is something that could be done in almost any community in the world, let alone in our country? What do you think about that? Well, you know, you and I both worked on education work yeah. in which your schools are trying to teach students and by doing helping them learn communication skills helping them learn how to learn the Hewlett Foundation program was called deeper learning but different organizations in different ways are, are doing it doing variations on this so I would say that this is a prime example of how to educate by doing projects by working in a creative enterprise you're learning you're learning math and you're learning English and yes. communication skills and how to write and all this other jazz through a medium that is exciting to you that motivates you that moves you to do something more to push yourself further so I don't know that video is the answer to every question but this kind of learning sure is yep. so powerful whether it's doing some kind of physics, working in a lab, working, doing theater. There's a million ways to engage young people in things that they care about in which they come out of this with so many other skills and aptitudes and things like that. We're just, it, it is, if anything, just a statement on our the parlous state of, of how we teach in in this country and, and in others too. I, I used to, I taught English in Japan and it is, like it, it was so rote. It was so dry. My students didn't learn a lot of English from me because I was so constrained in how I could teach it. And yeah. it was based on a, a way of, of teaching that just doesn't seem to work very well. Well, and Vili describes the many different levels at which the process is engaging people and creating outcomes. And you know, for all those different um, kinds of ways that you can think about engaging students in a deeper way. This piece, though, I love Billy's talking about. We're pulling forward these students, these children, whose stories are too often silenced and helping them understand that their story matters. And so that piece here, where it's not just video, but it's providing people that platform to understand that they have a story that's worthy of being told and they are going to be helped to tell it is just, it just feels so, so powerful. So I, I do want to then, as we close, give one last nod to something that Vili mentions towards the end of the interview that I think is just extraordinarily important, um, where she 
talks about the philanthropic landscape and really calls on philanthropy to reconfigure measurements of success to help better understand the power of story. And, you know, I don't think we've had anybody say it quite that way on this podcast, but it's funny in a field that loves to be, have its decision-making guided by data, which I think philanthropy at scale loves it's, it occurred to me, do we have a fundamental failure in even understanding how to evaluate and measure and value story and narrative so that we can rightfully place it in philanthropic grant-making strategies. And that's a much bigger topic than what we can get into now. But Vili mentions it. It's been mentioned in other places. There's another interview that's in the can that will we'll come back to this in another way. But that that hit me in a, special, in a new way in this conversation. And I would just be curious to get your perspectives on that as we wrap up because it struck me that that might be Philly might have her finger on the pulse of something that's pretty extraordinarily important there. Well, I've been banging my head against the wall trying to figure out how to better evaluate communications in general, certainly storytelling narrative work in, in particular. It It is true that people feel, sometimes evaluators feel that it is a subjective, a purely subjective enterprise trying to evaluate communications. But I think all evaluation requires subjectivity. So we shouldn't be too constrained. It shouldn't inhibit us from attempting to find better ways to measure effectiveness just because some of what we're looking at is qualitative. You know, are those good communications or bad or was the strategy logical or not? Uh, Is it likely or what is the level of likelihood that we can uh, assess about whether this work contributed to some kind of good outcome. I mean, that's a, a, a lot of evaluation asks those questions, and they attempt to attach numbers uh, to it. And sometimes those numbers are are you can have great confidence in them, and sometimes you they're a little more uh, impressionistic. So I I think that the fact that we haven't come up with the whatever you want to call it a gold standard measurement for evaluating narrative shift doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying and that we don't need to continue to ask those hard questions. Well, and the task there might even be helping to train the evaluators because, you know, even the evaluators can only evaluate something that they kind of have a, an understanding for how to even craft the, the, the frameworks. And I know that that can be a, a crucial part of evaluation that's often, you know, really difficult to get right. So, oh my goodness, Baycat, Vili Wong, um, what a contribution to Let's Hear It. And, you know, often we'll talk about wishing we had more access to these uh, storytellers, you know, the people that are coming on the podcast, wishing we had more places to he- see and hear them tell their own stories. And Vili has a wonderful TED talk where she recounts, you know, kind of her experience getting into the field, her experience launching Baycat, her own, you know, personal journey through the, all of that. I highly recommend it. And yes, Eric, you know, if we could pop things like this into the notes for the for this interview, it would just be great for people to flow through and see that, let alone just check out what's on the Big Cat website. But what a treat to hear from Vili Wong and Let's Hear It. That was really, really awesome. Thank you, Vili. Thank, thank you for doing One that. One of our great listeners and <laughs> now one of our great communicators. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that definitely includes yourself. 
We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Limited Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments, all for their generous support for this work. Oh, and check out Heinz's terrific podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at heinz.org slash podcast. Absolutely. And we certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you for listening. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Till next time. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs>